be seated. Now it's a privilege we have to turn to God's holy word. I invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Our text this morning will be verses 2 to 4. And today uh, my plan is is to preach on verses 2 to 6 in a, in a bit of a mini-series about how we as Christians in our lives can be a witness. First in our prayer our prayers to the Lord, but also then in our lives to the Lord. Uh, In preparation and in context, I'd like to read a longer portion. I'm actually going to begin reading at the beginning of Colossians 3, because this sets the stage, really, for this portion of God's Word, and particularly verse 17. But all of these things flow out of being raised with Christ, uh, Jesus our Lord. So let's begin by reading Colossians 3, starting at verse 1. But before we begin to read, let's ask once again for the Lord's blessing and the presence of His Spirit. Let's pray together. Dear God, our Father, we come before You. We are so thankful that in our very hands we hold Your Word. We are thankful that You, in Your grace and mercy, have given us Your revealed truth, a special revelation But Lord, we also confess that our minds are so often dull. 
We are weak, creaturely people, and we need your help. And so we pray that through your Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. For Jesus' sake, amen. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And here begins our text. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And this sermon is entitled, Prayer in the Christian Life. Well, in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul writes about 
the effects of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on God's people or within God's people, for God's people, and how they ought to live in light of the great salvation that He has won for them. He initially declared the need to put sin to death, particularly evil desires and sins of speech. Those are the things He mentions that we just read in Colossians 3. He then moved on to describe the virtues that should characterize all Christians, particularly because of the transforming power of God as He renewed believers into the image of God in Christ. Well, the apostle then became particularly specific, articulating how salvation in Christ should impact Christian relationships both at home and at work. Well, here in the beginning of chapter 4, the apostle nears the end of his letter to the Colossian believers, the Colossian church, by giving a set of final exhortations to the church. And in these exhortations, Paul once again steps back from addressing specific groups and gives instructions that are meant and to be received by all members of the church. And the first exhortation is to pray. In Scripture, prayer has a prominent place in the lives of God's people. After all, along with the reading and preaching of God's Word and the sacraments, prayer is a means by which God's people commune with the Lord. It is a vital means of grace. A prayer to the Lord is found early in Scripture. Soon after mankind's fall into sin, Cain, the first human being born into the world, murdered his brother Abel. And this terrible incident revealed the depths of evil and sinfulness that the human race had plummeted into after Adam's fall into sin. Yet, immediately after this crime, we read of great hope in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, where we read, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enoch. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Men called on the name of the Lord. God's people, even in the most early of days, prayed to the Lord their God. And in the midst of great sorrow, turmoil, and an uncertain future, sin having entered the world, God's people called on God's name. They prayed to Him. In biblical history, there are many examples of great prayers in Scripture. We recall David's prayer to God expressing his desire to build a temple, a prayer which God denied and left to his son Solomon. But in response to David's prayer, God covenanted with David, promising his line would reign forever on the throne of Israel. And of course, we know that this response to David's prayer was fulfilled and is continuing forevermore to be fulfilled in the reign of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Then there is Hezekiah's prayer. When Sennacherib was threatening Jerusalem, surrounding it with a great army, an apparently helpless situation, a hopeless situation, 
But with God, there is no hopeless situation. And God's response was to comfort Hezekiah and all of Judah. And subsequently, he killed the Assyrian army in one night, the angel of the Lord striking over 100,000 soldiers dead. Well, we also recalled the really extraordinary prayers of Daniel and Nehemiah, who prayed on behalf of God's people, asking for forgiveness of sins and guiding them in truth. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself was a man of great prayer. Undoubtedly, the Lord's Prayer is the most known prayer in Scripture and perhaps in all the world. The high priestly prayer of Christ recorded in John 17 is filled with comfort, truth, and provides a window into the covenant of redemption that God the Father made with God the Son from all eternity to save his people from their sins. In all, Scripture records 650 prayers in its pages, 25 of them from Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And we see then that Scripture is filled with prayer, both prayers recorded for us and occasions where his people, from the very beginning, prayed to the Lord. As a man of God's word, the Apostle Paul also emphasized the need for prayer in the Christian life. And here in our text, he deals with a topic of prayer as well. In our sermon this morning, we'll look at two aspects of what Paul says concerning prayer, an exhortation to prayer and a direction to prayer. And may the Lord bless us as we look into this blessed and important part of the Christian life together. And first, we have an exhortation to prayer. In all of his letters, all of Paul's letters, Prayer is greatly emphasized by the Apostle, both in his personal example of a strong prayer life and in his commands to pray without ceasing. And it's the same here in his letter to the Colossian church. In chapter 1, for example, after greeting the Colossian Christians, Paul begins the body of his letter with prayer in verse 3, saying that he prays for them and thanks God the Father for their faith in Christ and love for the saints. Then only six verses later, in chapter 1, verse 9, he prays that the Lord will fill them with the knowledge of his will. Then in chapter 2, Paul says that he is in great conflict over the Colossian believers, that they may be encouraged, that they might love one another and be filled with the knowledge of the gospel of Christ. And no doubt this conflict in Paul's heart is reflected and borne out in the reality that he prays for them. Paul was a man of prayer, and this flows out of his letters. And here in our text, Paul ends the section of practical exhortation to the Colossian believers by commanding them to pray. We read in verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that the apostle bookends his epistle to the Colossians with prayer, beginning prayer in chapter 1 and now closing the letter with exhortations to pray, reveals how highly he values and places prayer in the life of the church and individual Christians. Prayer is essential 
in the life of the Christian. It is commanded in numerous places in Scripture as a regular activity which Christians are to engage in. And here in our text, the Apostle Paul writes to continue steadfastly in prayer. Christians are to persevere in prayer, pray often, pray regularly, pray consistently. The New King James rendering of continuing earnestly or continuing steadfastly in prayer speaks of a conscientious decision to work hard at prayer. In fact, I think one of the more striking verses in some senses in this whole book is Colossians 4 verse 12. Epaphras, who is their pastor, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayer. For Epaphras, prayer was hard work. It was fervent work. And it's a key aspect of the Christian life. And to, we thus then must pray with thought and with effort and do so with great regularity. In his commentary on Colossians, Mark Johnston remarks that we must cultivate the discipline of prayer, pointing out that the growth of the church in the book of Acts was always accompanied by both preaching and by prayer. And Henry T. Mahan says, we can and ought to live in an attitude of prayer and fellowship with God. This does mean to pray frequently about all things. A day should not pass without prayer. Well, why does the, the apostle prioritize the necessity of persevering in prayer? Well, there are several reasons. And one reason is that prayer is a key means by which we communicate with God. Through prayer, we declare our praises of Him, confess our sins to Him, thank Him and make our requests to Him. And children, perhaps a, a helpful acronym to guide our prayers is ACTS, just like the book. Acknowledge God, give Him praise, confess to Him our sins, thank Him, a T, thank Him, and then supplication, we ask for requests. Jesus Christ reconciled us to God through His death on the cross, and therefore, we should commune with Him, fellowship with Him, and prayer is a means to do this. Well, prayer is also a source of strength for Christians. Consider Jesus Christ, who had the closest and most intimate relationship with God the Father. His times of prayer, often throughout an entire night, are recorded for us in Scripture. And when faced with the single most terrifying and most awful prospect of death on the cross, the wrath of his beloved Father going to be poured out upon him, what do we find Jesus doing? What is one of his last acts, in fact, his last act as a free man before being arrested? Well, he took his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. If Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, prayed for the blessing of God the Father, how much more ought we to pray?
We who are needy, who are weak, ones who still have remaining sin within us, who do not know what the next hour will bring in our lives. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, we need to pray to draw close to our God and gain strength, wisdom, and guidance by his hand of grace. Well, furthermore, we're to continue earnestly in prayer because God has provided Jesus Christ as our intercessor. In Christ, a door for prayer has been opened. We read in Hebrews 7, verses 24 to 25, about salvation in Christ and his work as our eternal high priest. We read there, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Oh, dear friends, this is great comfort. In Christ Jesus, who is now at the right hand of God, we have one who ever lives to make intercession for us. And he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. Jesus is ever present and ever able to bring our prayers to the throne of grace because he is God. He is the God-man, the Savior of the world. Well, along with Christ, we also have been given the Holy Spirit, who Scripture says makes intercession for us as well. We read in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What a joyful reality. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. Perhaps you can look back in your life, perhaps... Some of you older folks, maybe the children can't so much, but and, and remember a time of great burden in your life where you didn't know what steps to take. Heartache overwhelmed you. And, and, and you can't even articulate with your lips what you need to bring before God. Well, in those occasions, the Holy Spirit knows our hearts and brings our, our heart to the Lord. And articulates our need. Isn't that most tender of our God? What a joyful reality. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Intercessors. God our Father has provided all we need through Jesus Christ. And through the Holy Spirit. To equip us. And to pave the way for us. To pray. Heaven's doors are open to his people. And what a source of great encouragement. And great motivation to persevere in prayer. And we need such a motive, don't we? Prayer is hard, difficult work. And often we find ourselves saying, oh, I don't have enough time. Well, let's get rid of such a notion. And let's make time to commune with our God. And finally, a great motivation to continue in prayer is that God answers the prayers of his people. The Apostle Paul would not urge us to pray if it bore no fruit or if it was a pointless endeavor. Earlier, we saw how God answered the prayers of Hezekiah, David, and others. 
And consider that ultimately it is God himself through the apostle who is commanding us to pray. That God is the one we pray to and that he's the one who answers our prayers means that we must prioritize it and we must be encouraged for the God who commands is also the God who answers. God will answer your prayers. He does so every time, not always in the way that we desire or expect, but in the way that is best for us and in the way that gives him glory. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. God's glory may be established and our best also may be established and will be established in Christ. Let us then continue earnestly in prayer, submitting to God's will and praying for those things which are according to God's will, seeking his glory and honor and for the blessing and growth of the church. No matter your situation, dear ones, in your life, you can and should pray to the Lord to bless the church, yourself and your, in our society. We must continue earnestly in prayer. Well, Paul also says in this first portion of exhorting us to prayer, he says to be vigilant in prayer. And this means to pray with watchfulness, being alert. Well, how can Christians be vigilant in prayer? What is the connection between being alert and vigilant as a believer and praying? Well, in his letter to the Colossian church, the Apostle Paul has been warning them. One of the reasons he wrote is that Epaphras, their minister, went to Paul and told them that there was a danger in the Colossian church. And Paul has been warning them to flee from worldly philosophy which deny Christ, which add to what Christ has done by our own works, by going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and such, which are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substances of Christ, we read in chapter 2. And here Paul is then linking prayer with such warnings. And there are a number of ways in which being watchful and prayer are connected. Well, first, believers must pray to remain faithful in sound doctrine. We must pray that the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and that we do not run into theological error. Second, by being watchful in prayer, believers also will remain vigilant against personal sin. And theological error and personal sin are very much connected. Prayer helps in this way because when we pray in connection with the study of God's holy word, we are strengthened against sin. Being mindful of the things of God, what he demands of us as believers, and of our love for him and desire to be faithful to him. Commentator G.K. Beale notes that the combination of Greek words that connect the need to be watchful in prayer, here in our text, only occur in two other places in the New Testament, and that is in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And on those occasions, Jesus Christ, as we've already mentioned on the eve of his crucifixion, warns the disciples to keep in prayer so that they would not enter into temptation. And so communion with God in prayer strengthens us against sin. Well, thirdly, in the act of praying, we're declaring 
in a very practical way that we're dependent on God for our strength. We remember that Paul's declaration to the Colossian believers is that Jesus Christ is preeminent and he is a sufficient Savior, able to meet all of our needs. In praying, we're then both being reminded of the reality of Christ's ability to meet our need and declaring our dependence upon him for preserving us in the faith and protecting us from error and sin. And so Christians are to be vigilant in prayer. Like a watchman, we think of Ezekiel, a watchman on the wall, always being vigilant. So must we be in prayer as well. Well, Paul's final exhortation with respect to his exhortation to prayer is that it must be done in thankfulness. And Paul mentions thankfulness in this relatively short letter to the Colossians seven times. For example, we read in Colossians 3, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Our thankfulness to the Lord must be reflected then in our praying, in our prayers, a thankfulness which is rooted and grounded in the reality that we have been brought out of darkness and into the light of Jesus Christ because of God the Father's love for us. As Christians, Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins and has set us upon the path of life. And therefore, no matter what the difficulties are that lie in our path, we must and can legitimately be thankful because we know at the end Christ wins, and he'll bring us to glory. In Christ, Christians then have all reason to be thankful, despite trials, despite heartache and pain. And here Paul is not forgetting about the reality that the Christian life necessarily involves suffering. It does involve suffering. We remember that Paul is writing his letter to the Colossian believers from a prison cell. And he's writing to Christians who were being misled by false teachers. Yet they had much to be thankful for. No matter our personal circumstances, our prayers must be undergirded by the reality that as believers, we live in the victory of Jesus Christ over his and our enemies. A victory which has already been accomplished on his death on the cross, and in his subsequent resurrection, which is coming to fulfillment in the building of the church through the gospel, Sunday after Sunday, year after year. We are exhorted to prayer, to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Well, next we see the direction to prayer. In our text, the Apostle Paul does not stop at the how of Christian prayer, but he also places particular prayer requests before the Colossian believers. He sets before them a direction to prayer, and Paul requests that they pray for him and his fellow ministers of the gospel, and specifically that the gospel would go forth through them. We read again in verses 3 and 4. 
meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And here the apostle Paul requests that the Colossian believers pray for two things related to the ministry of the gospel. He asked them to pray for an open door for the preaching of the gospel, and that he would make it manifest or make clear the gospel in his preaching. And so first, Paul prays for an open door to the gospel. We note in verse 3 that Paul asks for prayer to have a door opened. But it isn't his prison door that he's requesting opened. Rather, it's the door for the Word of God. You see, Paul's priority, and this is an example to us, is not his own personal welfare, but that through him the gospel may go forward. He believed that the gospel was not chained or restricted because of his imprisonment. We read Paul writing about his imprisonment in this very topic in Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14, where we read, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so Paul shows that despite chains and imprisonment, the Lord enabled and provided an open door for the gospel to go through. And that was Paul's priority. That was his source of joy. We see that his priority was the glory of Christ, the building of his kingdom, and the salvation of the souls of the lost. Well, it's interesting here in verse 3 to see how Paul describes the gospel that he's praying to have open doors for. He calls it the mystery of Christ. Now, this is not the only place where he calls it this. Earlier in Uh, Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul defines that very terminology, saying, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles as well as the Jews are the objects of God's saving love in Christ Jesus. But more than that, The language reveals that Paul is saying that this mystery is not just the message of the gospel to go forward to the whole, all the earth, but rather this mystery, this gospel, is actually Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself is the sum and substance of the good news to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And Paul declares this reality in Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus, in his life, his death on the cross, and in his resurrection and ascension, is the power of God unto salvation. And this is the message that he asks that the Colossian believers pray that doors would be opened for that Christ would be preached. 
my son Christopher and I on the way up here listened to a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon on Acts 17. Acts 17, Paul went to the Areopagus, a Greek philosophical hotbed of pagan philosophy, and he preached Christ, a new thing. And there were a number who believed. And we see that in history, God has graciously answered the prayers of his people for this very thing, for the gospel to go forth with power. And this nation in which we live is an example of those answered prayers. From coast to coast, from north to south, there are Christians, there are churches even now worshiping the Lord our God. Well, a further example. In the 1850s, the last large-scale revival took place in Great Britain, and particularly in Ulster, Northern Ireland, and first among the Irish Presbyterians and then on to other Protestant denominations. In fact, that uh, revival extended to this country, the United States of America, and to this very state of Virginia. Uh, Virginia has a great history of Christianity, uh, Presbyterianism specifically. Well, we read in John Weir's account entitled The Ulster Awakening, we read the following. In September of 1857, was commended in a little schoolhouse near to Connor County Antrim, the Believers Fellowship Meeting. And the society consisted at first of four young men. You see, four young men thought, let's pray together. Let's gather in prayer. John Wallace, James McQuilkin, Robert Carlyle, and Jay Manili. The special object of their society was prayer that God would bless the preaching of the gospel in the Connor congregation. And their own labor and those of others in connection with the prayer meetings and Sabbath schools throughout the district. And this group of four young men met together to pray for the blessing of the ministry of the gospel in their church, that their own pastor, his ministry would go forth with power. And those young men were fulfilling what our text called the Colossian believers to do, to pray for the ministry of the word in their church and beyond, and that doors would be open to that very thing. Well, the Lord heard and answered the prayers of these four young men. Regarding the following spring of the next year, the following account is written. The power of prayer began to be known and felt and seen. The old prayer meetings began to be thronged and many new ones established. No difficulty now to find persons to take part in them. The winter was past. The time of the singing of birds had come. Humble, grateful, loving, joyous converts multiplied. They, with the children of God who in that district have been revived, greatly refreshed by this divine spirit, are now very numerous. There are on average 16 prayer meetings every night in the week throughout the bounds of that one congregation. About 100 prayer meetings every week. The awakening to a sight of sin, the conviction of its sinfulness, the illumination of the soul and the knowledge of a glorious Savior, and conversion to Him, all this operation carried on by the life-giving Spirit was in the Connor district for more than 18 months. And so we see the Spirit pouring himself out 
answering the prayers of those four young men in a mighty way. The Lord poured out his spirit of blessing upon the preaching of the word among the Presbyterians in Ulster in the 1850s, hearing the prayers of his people. And may he do so among us in the coming of Mr. Bennett, your pastor. May the Lord pour forth mightily his spirit from this very pulpit through the man who God has chose for you. What an exciting prospect, isn't it? Perhaps some of the empty chairs will soon be filled by people who are right now out there, but who will want to come in and worship the Lord their Savior. Well, so we see that the Apostle Paul prays that the Lord would open a door for the gospel. Well, in verse 4, Paul adds another dimension to his request for prayer. He asks for prayer that he might make the gospel manifest as he ought to speak. You see, Paul's desire is that the gospel go forth clearly, understandably, which is his duty before the Lord as a called minister of Christ. He desires that the gospel go forth in a way that it penetrates the hearts of a people and causes them to know who God is, causes them to know who they are as needy sinners, and causes them to know who Jesus Christ is as the Savior and Lord of the world. The revival that we've just articulated and seen in Ulster featured people who had an awakened understanding of their sinfulness, of their great need of a Savior. And this occurs when the Holy Spirit applies a clear gospel declaration and convicts people of their sin. A clear gospel declaration also involves a clear presentation of who Christ is and how he has saved his people through his atoning death, he taking their sins on his own shoulders and paying the penalty for them on the cross. And in his resurrection, new life and in union with him, us living forever with him in glory. And dear friends, this is the great need of our day here in Lynchburg, Virginia, and beyond. People need the Lord. The gospel must go forth in power and in clarity. And this is what the Apostle Paul asks the Colossian believers to pray for. Dear children of God, make it a priority in your life to pray for the growth of the kingdom of God. Pray both for the door of the ministry to open here in Lynchburg, as well as a clear gospel message to go forth. Pray also for those who are called to minister the gospel, Pastor Bennett being the first object of your prayers in that regard, but also all of the ministers in our Presbyterian, in our denomination. We see great needs around us, don't we? In many respects, we're living in a nation which is dying spiritually. There is great confusion in so many people, and there is a growing ungodliness around us that concerns each one of us. So many people believe that they're on the way to glory, but they don't know they are sinners in need of salvation. I think it's fair. I'm a Canadian. I don't know the geography 100%, but we seem to be in the Bible Belt 
in the United States where traditional Christianity exists. And many I have spoken to in Suffolk and beyond trust in their own righteousness, expecting to give a good testimony of their morally good lives to the Lord on the day of judgment. But they will be seen as lawless and disobedient because they're rejecting Christ and his offer of salvation, his offer to purge them and cleanse them from the guilt of their sin and have his own righteous life imputed to him. No, I don't need that. I'm good. The Lord will let me into glory because I'm a good man. Will others entirely reject Christ, believing in false religion or embracing atheism? Confusion over gender, holding LGBTQ plus views, permitting and practicing the evils of abortion. They, all these things stem from a rejection of the gospel. They're symptoms of a deeper problem. Without the saving, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, people are at enmity with God, at odds with Him, at war against Him in their hearts and their minds. They love sin, and they're in the bonds and bounds of Satan. And this is why Christians must pray that God would open the door for the Word, for the speaking of the mystery of Christ, that it may be made manifest, made clear. However, as Christians, that is not our first priority. Our first priority must be to pray for ourselves. Are we also not spiritually dull, dear friends? We need to pray for ourselves as well. We are so often bogged down by earthly loves, earthly plans, earthly cares. John Kelvin says the human heart is a constant factory of idols. And don't we see that in our own lives? Let us pray then to be loosed from such things and love the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel to go forward. Dear ones, we all have a clear duty before us that God places. We are to pray. Our duty is to pray and to be thankful to the Lord and he will use us for his glory. When we look at the Apostle Paul and his exhortation to pray continuously, watchfully and thankfully, we are reminded about how vital prayer is in the life of the Christian. We must commune with our God. The Lord has given us through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit a channel of communication directly to our Heavenly Father. And prayer is a means by which we draw near to God and through which we are strengthened against sin. Let us then obey what we read in Scripture and live our lives as lives of prayer. No matter your situation, working, in school, retired, we can pray. No matter our age, children, young adults, parents, those who have the crown of old age upon their heads, we can pray. Pray for your children. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your friends. Pray for your city, your state, and our nation. Pray for our church leaders, our government leaders, and our police. And as Paul asked in our text, pray for your church, that the Lord would open doors to the ministry and that the gospel would go forth clearly to the glory of Christ the building of his church.
and the blessing of his people. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, we come before you. We thank you for such an exhortation we have in your holy word. Oh, Lord, we need to be reminded of the need to pray, that we must derive our strength from you because in ourselves we cannot go forward. We would be ineffective. Our words would fall on deaf ears. But Lord, with the word combined with the spirit, there is true power. And we pray that that power be exercised in our own lives first, that you would revive our hearts, increase our love for you and our faith in you, Lord, that we might be bold and loving to the community around us. Oh, may your glory go forth through us and help us to be encouraged in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.